0: Well, this is fun. I apologize for, I think, some of the sound here. We'll see how this goes. Hopefully there's no feedback or anything, but uh, this is cool. This is different for me to see it all kind of channeled in one trough. I don't know what to call it, but anyway, <laughs> they have come to eat. That There's truth to that. Have you ever heard of a baby being born wearing a Rolex watch? And holding the keys to a new BMW in their one hand and in the other hand, the, the deed to a vacation home in the Hamptons. Have you ever heard of that? Well, it, it actually happened last week at LGH. No, it didn't. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. But I've heard some weird things in my life, and uh, that kind of stuff doesn't happen, folks. It does not happen. At the same time, have you ever heard of someone who died and took their Rolex, BMW, and vacation home with them? No, well, that doesn't happen either. See, we were all born into this world naked and with a net worth of zero, and we all enter eternity with a net worth of zero. And everything that we have in this life is grace upon grace from God. We all know that that money can buy some really cool things. Absolutely. But we also know that money destroys people's lives. And you know what? Money isn't the problem. Uh, the problem is the human heart and its desire for money. When someone lusts for money, it's a heart problem and, it, and, and, and a theological problem. But God can change the human heart and God can reform and shape our theology. The point I, I want you to see this morning is godliness with contentment is much greater gain than riches. And that's true, and that's also a doctrinal statement. So I I want you also to see how vital a good doctrine is to godliness and contentment. So let's start with healthy doctrine accords with godliness. Healthy doctrine accords with godliness. We need to know what what godliness is. Uh, It's a big theme in 1 Timothy, mentioned a bunch of times. Godliness is the union of God-honoring belief And God honoring behavior, it's piety or gladly doing what God commands because you love, revere and trust God. You could say godliness is carrying out your covenant obligations in union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit for God's glory. Uh, So when Paul mentioned the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching, or you could say doctrine, that accords with godliness, it is right to say that healthy gospel doctrine accords or it corresponds with godliness. Now, if you were all bones and no muscles, you'd be a pile of sticks with no power to move anywhere. If you were all muscles and no bones, you'd be this weird blob of meat on the ground without any uh, power or with the power, but but you can't have no structure to make that power meaningful in any way. The skeletal and muscular systems work together. They correspond with each other unto meaningful activity. So it is with healthy doctrine and godliness. Do you want to live free from the dominating oppression of sin and want to live a godly life, enjoying all the benefits of godliness? Well, Psalm 119 verse 9 asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? How is that even possible? And it gives the answer, by guarding it according to your word. According to your word. Verse 11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then verse 17 accents the role of God's sovereign grace in in living this way by adding, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Healthy doctrine accords with godliness and godliness is great, great gain. So you must search God's word as you would for hidden treasures and trust Uh, Trust it to ensure that your doctrine is healthy. Sadly, though, on the flip side, there is sick doctrine that accords with ungodliness. Sick doctrine that ruins people's lives. Sick doctrine accords with ungodliness. Now, why would Paul say things like this to Timothy? Command and teach these things. Well, for one, there were people in the church of Ephesus that were are teaching weird things. Things contrary to gospel doctrine. Right out of the gate, Paul addressed this problem. Think back to chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, which says this. As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And you can hear it in what Paul is saying. Sick doctrine accords with ungodliness. It leads people to speculations, vain discussion, pride ignorance now in chapter 6 paul returned to the false teachers listen again to the grim picture that, that paul paints if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our lord jesus christ and the teaching that accords with godliness he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Bad doctrine leads to bad things, really bad things. Paul used the Greek compound word, uh, hetero that's a mouthful heteros meaning different or strange and then didasco meaning to teach paul was exposing the heart of people who teach bizarre things that contradict the sound words of jesus and clear gospel doctrine and you'll notice in the passage what corresponds with strange teaching number one pride He is puffed up with conceit like a helium balloon at a birthday party to disagree with Jesus. Because you think you know better is the epitome of conceit. I know more than him. Listen to what I'm saying. Now, that's the epitome of conceit. Number two, ignorance. He understands nothing. Ouch. What an indictment to disagree with Jesus is to prove yourself an idiot. Number three, sick desires. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Now make no mistake, precise words are necessary for sound doctrine. We need to be precise with our words. What Paul is talking about is recklessness in handling words, carelessness of handling words for the sake of, of disputation, argument. Uh, This would be calling into question, an example of this, calling into question the virgin birth of Jesus by ignoring the clear meaning in Scripture and casting doubt on the word virgin, claiming that in the, quote, first century being born of a virgin also referred to a child whose mother became pregnant the first time she had intercourse, end of quote. And you'll find that kind of thinking on the racks at the local Christian bookstore. Evangelicals love that guy's book, which questioned the virgin birth through words, dicey usages of words. This sick desire for controversy and quarrels over words leads to more horrible things among people. Envy or ill will towards the success of others, dissension or bitter disagreements or antagonism, uh, slander or blasphemia, which is the word that he uses here, meaning the uh, these abusive words meaning to meant to slur the image or reputation of someone else, the name, evil suspicions or hidden thoughts in the heart, conjectures, assumptions, wrong conclusions that are based on no evidence, constant friction among the depraved and deprived. That's instigating aggravation in people. Uh, Do you see where sick doctrine leads? When the truth is not the feast, the corrupt mind, deprived of the truth, starves itself into many evils. Many, many evils. And then Paul added this. greed. verse 5. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Bingo. Right there it is. If, if I teach a novel idea, something innovative, something creative, a, a popular idea which distinguishes me from those other teachers, I can make money off of this. I can make money. I can get rich. I can sell books. I might be able to hit the speaking circuit with these ideas, and maybe they'll make a movie about my, my heaven tourism story. Strange doctrine, my friends, is a big commodity that sells. There's a huge market for it. Strange doctrine sells, and strange doctrine builds megachurches. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Verse 5 could have hinted at an early form of the prosperity gospel, but the motive is the same, greed. Now, an honest living is not in view here. Uh, In chapter 5, Paul advocated uh, teaching elders getting paid well. So we know it's not making a living. These false teachers wanted to get rich off of their strange doctrine. Um, they offer their strange teaching in the church and it was happening in Crete as well. Titus one 11, they must be silenced. Paul said, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, what they ought not to teach. And then talking about false teachers in 2 Timothy or second Peter two, rather Peter said this in their greed, they exploit you with false words. Now, consider the ministries of Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Pat Robertson, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Paula White, Joyce Myers, Joseph Prince, and Joel Osteen, and sadly, many, many others. Look at two things about their ministries. Number one, their false teachings, and number two, their luxurious lifestyles. Uh, One of these people actually said this, quote, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. It's God's will for you to live in prosperity instead of poverty, end of quote. What does that mean for Jesus's life? Now, the person who wrote that, they have an estimated worth of 40 to 68 million dollars live a, they live in a 10 and dollar home in an exclusive neighborhood they own a yacht and they're chauffeured around in luxury cars if riches are the aim of our godliness then riches are what we're really after and not god and that's called idolatry not godliness Verses three through five is the stuff that heretics are made of because sick doctrine accords with ungodliness, greed, avarice. But what if we flipped verses three through five? Watch how this works. If anyone teaches gospel doctrine and agrees with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is humble and wise. He has a healthy craving for unity and agreement about words, which produce goodwill, peace, encouragement, good discernment, and constant harmony among people who are redeemed of mind and abiding in the truth, trusting that godliness with contentment is great gain. That's very different. Horrendous sin is indivisible from sick doctrine. Sick teaching is so pernicious because it lures us away from God and into error and accords with ungodliness and greed, and yet sound teaching is so precious because it leads us closer to God and guards us from error and accords with godliness and desiring God. Paul made a a big point in verses 6 through 8 to contrast the prosperity-seeking false teachers in Ephesus but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we can take and cannot take anything out of the world but if we have food and clothing with these we will be content now you probably don't hear prosperity preachers preach on those kind of texts because it attacks the very the root the foundation of their ministries So try try to remember this line here. Godliness with contentment is great gain and essential to your greatest happiness. Wealth doesn't equal happiness. Neither does poverty equal unhappiness. True happiness transcends money. It transcends wealth. It transcends possessions because true happiness is found in knowing and obeying God. Back in chapter four, verses seven and eight, Paul said, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> Paul said to train for godliness because godliness is a value in every way. It holds promise for this life and it holds promise for the next life. Dr. Philip Reichen said, quote, godliness is not the means to financial gain. Godliness is the gain. End of quote. To, to know God and his word and to walk by the spirit in righteousness is inestimable gain. Likely, the richest man that ever lived or will live said this. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Now, how could the prosperous King Solomon say that? How could he write that? Because he knew God's economics. He knew how this stuff works. Righteousness is more valuable than riches. Otherwise, Proverbs sixteen 8 doesn't work. It just it can't be true if, if, if righteousness is not more valuable than riches. To be right with God is extravagant wealth, worth more than all of the riches and the wealth of the world. Paul learned to be content in whatever circumstances he faced. Whatever he found himself, he could be content precisely because what he believed. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The key to contentment, the key to godliness is Jesus Christ abiding in you and strengthening you unto contentment. He he is the greatest gain. And before he talked about contentment, Paul said this, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because God was his ultimate gain. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord. He said, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. I count everything as loss because of, and this is very important, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus or Christ Jesus, my Lord. The surpassing worth. Now, people can say with deep conviction, godliness with contentment is great gain when they believe that the worth of knowing Christ surpasses the worth of everything else. That's when it's like you mean it when you say it. And and without that conviction, I don't think true contentment can be enjoyed in life. Without that, Jesus is more. Jesus is better. Jesus is more valuable than all of this. And In verse 5, Paul said, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, and, and he's talking about greedy financial gain, but Paul wanted to be absolutely sure that he was understood and not to mislead people with some weird thinking about godliness, that it isn't gained at all. So he clarifies, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is the gain. Contentment is the gain. Uh, but not because somehow they take us to guaranteed riches so that we can get rich. Hebrews 13.5, it it complements today's text really, really well. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for, here's the explanation, he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. (coughs) Now, how does Christ's statement... I will never leave you or forsake you work to prevent the love of money and and to promote true contentment in our lives. How does that work together? Well, the, the steadfast presence of Jesus is more valuable than money. And as Jesus is with you, he weakens your love of money Intensifies your contentment with what you have and makes you more and more grateful for God That's what he does within you. You need him to take you through that process Jeff Bezos of Amazon is worth 90.6 billion dollars He will meet God without a penny in his pocket Bill Gates of Microsoft is worth 90 billion dollars and he will meet God without a penny in his pocket And you and I will go to meet God without a penny in our pocket. But will you have Christ? Will you have gained godliness with contentment? Will you have that in your heart? Now, wills and estate sales, they exist because verse 7 is true. Uh, When you die, you will take absolutely nothing with you. It all stays. You can't take it with you so What good reason do you have not to be content with Christ alone, who will be your forever treasure and gain? You cannot be truly content without Jesus and the brand of supernatural contentment that he alone gives. When Christ and godliness with contentment are your greatest gain, uh, you can freely utter the words, these words, and, and really mean them, but... If we have food and clothing or covering, you could say, which which could include shelter there, with these we will be content. That's a big statement, folks. And with Christ alone, you can make it and mean it and actually mean it. A poor old widow in the countryside of Russia can have more contentment and happiness than a rich young billionaire partying at Copacabana Beach. The secret of contentment is simple. Be satisfied to know God through Christ and to live for him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Dr. Reichen, again, I just I quote him a lot, but he just puts some really helpful stuff. So I'm like, I'll share it. So he said this. Anyone who has Jesus Christ has everything he or she needs. The trouble is that we are not always content. Some of our discontent comes from the natural frustration of living in a fallen world. We are waiting for Jesus to make everything new. That's true. But a good deal of our discontent also comes from not being satisfied with Jesus himself. We want something more or something else. That's helpful. That is helpful. If you're satisfied with Christ alone, can't you be content with food and clothing? he's all I need, he's all I want food and clothing thank you God for those if Jesus is your greatest gain won't you still be okay if you lose everything you need folks, you need substantial theology to think this way you need it you you will not get there without deep doctrine in your heart, It, it needs to be living in you So you can say with conviction, with Christ, I have enough. With Christ, he is enough. I have what I need. We need supernatural grace to think that way. We need supernatural grace to live that way. So let me state the obvious. You and I struggle with discontentment. We do. Uh, We have so much. We live in the Disneyland of the world. We have everything we could ever want, and yet we complain. And we whine as if God is entitled to do whatever we want, to give us whatever we want. And it robs us of joy. And I know this struggle very, very well. I struggle with it every day. So how can we fight discontentment and actually win? Not just put up a good fight, but let's win. Right? We need a W in this column. We'll look back at verse 3. The teaching that accords with godliness. Why has Paul been emphasizing doctrine, teaching? Why harp on that? Because gospel teaching transforms people. You fight discontentment when the word of Christ abides in you, when it dwells in you richly. You fight discontentment by trusting and proclaiming God's word until the discontentment fades, until it wanes, until it is killed. That's what you do in verse 8, verse 8, you know, it can revolutionize your your budget and your, your shopping habits. Actually, it can revolutionize your entire life. Alright, so why don't you try something as you're considering verse 8? Why don't you try this? Before you buy anything, think think these thoughts to yourself. I deserve hell. But God is graciously giving me Christ. I treasure him so. With him, I have enough. I have enough. With food and clothing, I am content. That's going to change your spending habits. If you do that a little bit more, I don't think you're going to buy as much. And this point is not to make you feel guilty when you buy something. You'd be missing the point. That's not the point. Um, The point is for Christ to be enough. For him to be enough, for him to be your treasure, and for the word of God to guard you against the lust for riches, which is right there. It is ever so close. We have to be aware and have to fight against what is naturally in our hearts. So ask yourself this Am I so filled with the sound words of my Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching which accords uh, with godliness that the lies of TV? radio, magazines, books, and even the lifestyles uh, and viewpoints of family and friends don't stand a chance to con me into greed and discontentment. I can stand because I believe the promises of God. We have to be so filled with the word and spirit that there's no room for greed and discontentment. With solemnity, Paul described what happens to people who lust for money. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is a frightening reality. And America needs to hear this message. And in our first world opulence, even here in Mannheim, we need to hear this message. Desiring to be rich brings unimaginable pain and suffering with it. Desiring to be rich brings unimaginable pain and suffering with it. Paul was was not condemning a desire to work hard and to make money and to provide for your family. That's not what he was getting after. Uh, Paul was not even condemning being rich. He was going deeper to the heart of the matter, to to the place which is most desperate and in need of the gospel. Those who desire or wish or want to be rich. It's a matter of the heart. That desire is an overflow of the heart. So when someone wants so badly to be rich, I just got to have it. What happens to them? What was happening to the false teachers in Ephesus who wanted to get rich? Like a helpless animal falling into a quarry, they fell into temptation. They stepped into a noose. They mindlessly rushed into all of these dangerous desires. If you think about it, the desire to be rich um, drives organized crime, drug dealing, pornography, tax fraud, family disputes war and we've already seen false teaching for profit in the church how senseless and harmful these many desires are for people and paul said these many senseless and harmful desires plunge people into ruin and destruction the the lust for riches submerges people in ruin and destruction and it drowns them it kills them it drowns them paul's idea is not simply to waste your life not not simply to to invite pain in your life now, but worse, he's pointing to eternal damnation. He's turning to eternal perdition, ruin and destruction are eternal perdition. They're spiritual death. It's not a pretty picture. What what this lust can do for people? Now you've probably we've all probably heard it said that money is the root of all evil. Now that's not true. That's not in the Bible. That's not what Scripture says. Being rich is not evil either. And we'll see that uh, uh, soon in verses 17 through 19. The King James Version gets the sense of verse 10 wrong by saying this, for the love of money is the root of all evil. No, that's not the case. But being rich is so extremely dangerous because the heart is so easily tempted to greed, is so easily tempted to discontentment. Um, This is it's it's a slippery slope. So so then why is the desire to be rich so ruinous and destructive for people? Verse 10 gives the answer for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. When someone loves money, when they crave money, when they lust for money, you might think of Scrooge McDuck from the 80s cartoon show uh, DuckTales, if any have seen that, swimming through his money in his big vault. Their desire is a root or the basic cause of all kinds of evils. And and I think Paul was expounding on this phrase senseless and harmful desires. Senseless, out of our minds and and harmful. Again, if you look back over verses 3 through 5, you see some of the evils linked to the lust for money. And, And the end of verse 10 simply confers Paul's Uh, confirms Paul's use of ruin and destruction. It wasn't hyperbole. He's speaking the truth, and very clearly, the craving to be rich, reaching out to grab that wealth, aspiring to great riches, led people in the Ephesian church away from the Christian faith and right into deep anxiety, anguish, and eternal ruin. I think we see this in the American culture. The richest culture on earth, and people are miserable, You ever draw a connection there? Our wealth is doing something to us, folks. Now, I, to be honest, I didn't really know what pangs were. I was like, I got to look that up. A pang is a sudden rush of emotional distress and, and a sharp feeling inside. It's emotional agony. By lusting for money, deep emotional stress is added to your life. You add it to your own life through that lust. Now, in 2013, several years ago, Britain's Jane Park won uh, the lottery, and she came into one million British pounds. She was 17 years old when she won, and her life all of a sudden became shopping. She just went shopping all the time, and, and when that got old for her, uh, she actually blamed the lottery bosses for, quote, ruining her life. Her words, ruining her life, um, and so uh, Park said this. I thought it would make it 10 times better, but it's made it 10 times worse. I wish I had no money most days. I say to myself, my life would be so much easier if I hadn't won. People look at me and think, I wish I had her lifestyle. I wish I had her money, but they don't realize the extent of my stress. I have material things, but apart from that, my life is empty. What is my purpose in life? And that's really sad. That's really sad. Let me ask this question. Did the desire to be rich and discontentment drive Jane Park to play the lottery in the first place? And now discontentment and more problems pierce her after she got exactly what she wanted. The love of money ruins people. It makes me think of Gollum, the the, the pitiful character from the Lord of the Rings. His obsession with the ring ruined his life and it brought him to destruction near the end of of the return of the king. During the scene of Gollum's demise, uh, Gollum fought Frodo, who bore the ring, who he wore it on his hand. He bit off Frodo's finger with his, I'm sorry, yeah, with the ring on it. And then Tolkien describes it this way. Frodo gave a cry. And there he was, fallen upon his knees at the chasm's edge, but Gollum, dancing like mad, like a mad thing, held aloft the ring, a finger still thrust within its circle. It shone now as if verily it was wrought of living fire. Precious, 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 Gollum cried. My precious, oh, my precious. And with that, even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, he stepped too far, toppled, wavered for a moment on the brink, and then with a shriek. He fell. Out of the depths came his last wail, precious, and he was gone. Now, what an illustration of verses 9 and 10. A picture of ruin and destruction, a parallel to how people crave money and wander away from the faith and pierce themselves with many pangs. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful parallel. Gollum was tormented by his idolatrous infatuation with the ring. As those who desire to be rich are with riches. Wandered away from the faith coincides with ruin and destruction. When someone finally rejects Christ like Judas, they prove themselves sons or daughters of perdition. This is Hymenaeus and Alexander from chapter 1 who shipwrecked their faith. This is those who departed from the faith and devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons in chapter 4. So how do we fight this discontentment in us? How do we go after it? How do we avoid being controlled by the desire to be rich and the love of money? Well, you've got to go back to chapter 2. Uh, 1 and 2. Christ gives strength. God gives mercy. God's grace overflows for us. We trust Christ. Christ came to save us from our sin, including discontentment, and he has saved us and he continues to save us so that we may display his perfect patience as examples of redeemed people who value Jesus Christ more than we value riches. God desires his people to have knowledge of the truth. So when Paul mentioned the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is emphasizing the gospel of Jesus Christ that it is the means by which we attain godliness and therein contentment. When Jesus is our gain and by grace we we treasure him more and more as he is revealed to us in God's word, the desire for riches and the love of money die in us because Christ kills it. He in us kills it and then brings to life new desires and stronger desires for God. He's he's replacing, he's working by his grace. Our fight comes from the gospel at work in us, leading our mind to think the thoughts that are presented in Scripture and to believe what is there and to live out by the power of the Holy Spirit what's there. Now, next week, we're going to, in the coming weeks, we're actually, it's going to be good. We're going to dig in a little bit more uh, to how to fight, but I'll end with this. Find your healthy doctrine, godliness, contentment, and gain in Christ alone. In Christ alone. Folks, how do you know what to believe? How do you know? How do you know you're not buying into all kinds of lies? How do you know what to believe? Look to Christ And, and trust His Word. How do you know how to behave? How do you know how to be godly? Look to Christ. And trust his spirit to empower your godliness. What is the secret of being content in this life? How can you reach contentment? Look to Christ, who is your preeminent treasure, and trust him uh, to, to give you contentment in God. What is your greatest gain in life? What's most valuable to you? What's most important? What do you treasure more than anything else? It is the person of Jesus Christ. It is His work that He, His gracious work, very gracious and kind and loving work for us, that He continues to do for us, that He does in us, that He does through us, so that you are content with God alone. He can help you with this. Now, I'm not much for poetry. I'm more of a prose guy. Just give it to me straight and kind of let me. But but one of my favorite poems is titled "The Calvinist." And there's a a video of multiple theologians reciting the poem, and it can bring me to tears. I, I love the video. I've watched it many times. And the last line of the poem goes like this. See him nearing death. Listen to his breath. Through the ebbing pain, final whisper, gain. Gain. And in that video, that line, that last line, it is particularly meaningful because it was read by R.C. Sproul, who has since gone home to be with Jesus. Gain, 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 gain. How could death be gained considering all that we leave behind? All that you can't take with you, all the things that are precious to you in this life. How could death be gain? Because Christ is great gain and godliness with contentment is great gain. To live is Christ and to die is. Gain. Gain. And when that truth, when that penetrates deeply within your heart, you will find the contentment and joy that you so desperately desire. You will find peace for your soul. You will be content. Your heart will be at peace. You can rest well. Your godliness and contentment will not be in money will not be in possessions, will not be in power or fame or anything else that the world has to offer. It will be in the priceless reality of Christ alone. Godliness with contentment is much greater gain than all the riches of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for being honest with us, for training us and teaching us and feeding us with your word. We need you to speak to us, to train us how to think, because we're all over the place. We believe lies quickly. We're gullible people. Oh, but God, when you speak into our lives to transform the way that we think and and to give us sound and healthy and gospel and Christ-like doctrine, when we have the words of Jesus abiding in us, then we can sniff out the lies of our culture. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that riches will not fulfill us. They will not make us happy. Only you and your son and your spirit can make us truly happy. We thank you that you are a triune God that has condescended to speak to us, to send your son in the flesh for us so that we can see what it's all about, so that we can hear from him through his word, Uh, That riches aren't it. We need more than riches. Riches are so small. They're so insignificant. Uh, But the riches we have in you, God, are great. The riches we have in your son are great. And so I pray that you would do a movement at Jerusalem Church. That people will value Christ more than riches. And that in valuing him, they will be entirely content with food and clothing and shelter. Uh, God, may we not be um, lavish livers luxurious livers, but let us have compassion on the poor and the needy God that we could give because we love Jesus so much. Make us grateful that all of our lives are simply a response of gratitude to your gospel. We love you, God. Uh, uh, May this word produce fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.